Welcome, fans of Auditory Entertainment. I'm Austin, Senior Vice President of Applied Transduction and Crossfading, here at the R&D Department at Racecar Radio's World Headquarters. We couldn't be more thrilled to tell you that London's New York is being sponsored by Audible, the world's biggest and best provider of audiobooks. Everyone listening right now can get a free audiobook by signing up for a no-obligation 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash LNY. While there, you can choose from one of their amazing collection of audiobooks. Ah, looks like we're getting a call from Dan London on the book recommendation line. Dan, is that you? Uh, yeah, that's me. What book are you recommending today? Today, I'm recommending The Invention of Brownstone Brooklyn, Gentrification and the Search for Authenticity in Post-War New York by Suleiman Osman. It's a book on the history of gentrification. We think about this as a modern process, but this book really delves into how what we see today going on in places like Williamsburg and Bushwick has a history at least 50 years old. So it's a really crucial book for this time, I think. Ah, thanks, Dan. Again, that book was The Invention of Brownstone Brooklyn, Gentrification, and the Search for Authenticity in Post-War New York by Suleiman Osman and narrated by Mark Cashman. That's just one of an amazing collection of audiobooks about New York City that you can choose from. Just go to audibletrial.com slash LNY to sign up today for a 30-day trial membership. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash LNY. This is London's New York. Today, Dan and I are in Manhattan on what seems to be an unremarkable residential block on the Upper West Side. But it turns out that there's actually quite a lot to say about this perfectly ordinary little patch, because it's one of many blocks that are almost completely filled with what's probably the most quintessentially New York kind of building, the skinny four-story row house known as a brownstone. We're on West 90th Street? West 90th. We're on a sort of smaller side street leading up to uh, Central Park. We can see the sort of a raggedy edge of trees on the left, uh, on the right, sort of fades out into the blue of the Hudson River area. And in front of us is this uh, serrated cliff of brownstones. Uh, And the Upper West Side is one of the great brownstone districts of the city. Others would be Harlem, Fort Greene, Park Slope, Bedford-Stuyvesant. And they're, for me, the most ideal form of urban housing. They're small enough so that you can really see and appreciate uh, all of their intricate decorations, where you can see, um, you know, people up on the roof. They can call down from the sidewalk, uh, a lot of eyes on the street. But they're not so small as to be, let's say, the typical suburban house. which can be inefficient, which can sprawl out a lot, obviously. And, you know, this housing style, this brownstone, it came about in the 1830s, 40s. It really gave a name, brown, to the entire period. You know, there's uh, the late 19th century was called the Mauve Decade uh, by a lot of commentators. Um, uh not even the Gilded Age, but the, because this style was so ubiquitous, it was such a symbol of that entire era for many people. And many architects of the 20th century, 
the early 20th century were reacting against this paradigm of housing in many different ways. Um, you know, for them, this was a style that was antiquated. It was stuffy. It was bourgeois. It was also unsanitary because, you know, there are no windows on the side of these buildings. You only get air and light from the very front or, if you were lucky, at the very back. They were also considered kind of ugly, actually, because, you know, these they're called brownstones, but really only the facade of them is lined in that material, this sort of Triassic era sandstone. All the rest of it is brick, typically. So this would be considered like vinyl siding for a lot of Victorian commentators. They just thought of it as very tacky and homogenous. When these were built originally, um, it didn't have this wonderful kind of uneven decay and mold that you see around it that give them so much of their current personality. Um, instead, they were all, they look like ticky-tacky. All of the stone was pristine. There were no nicks. There were no scratches. Your eyes just glided across them, you know. And now they've gotten this individuality back because the stones decayed a little bit because people have painted it different colors and also because there are other taller buildings to contrast it with. But back in the day, it was very different. And one of the big, you could sort of gauge the trends in American urbanist thought by their changing reactions to the brownstone form. Um, it's amazing to me because to me, they're the icon of like the ideal... I mean, they're, I think they're beautiful yeah. and have so much personality and so much, and it's a house. I mean, it's like you're living in a real house, but you still are in the city. Yeah. You know, it's so much better than the mid 20th century giant steel and glass boxes mm -hmm. with little boxes inside them and everybody gets your own box. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of romanticism you can attach to the very tall structures, the San Remos and the Dakota. They have a glamour. There's a glamour also to the Parisian-style apartment, which are actually much denser and taller than uh, these brownstones. Um, and uh, it also, there's a glamour to, you know, if you go to Norway and you go to some of these other housing developments, there's a communal backyard that everybody shares as opposed to the little slivers that you get under this approach. But there is something about the, the brownstone that's... It, it, a lot of things come together with it. The, the mythos of the stoop, of the bay window, of the roof, which is flat, unlike a lot of other countries' uh, buildings, uh, 19th century buildings. They're flat, so you can walk across them, unlike in per Paris a lot of the time. Yeah, and so there's this whole history here about brownstones um, and the way commentators have thought about it. And what comes out in these discussions is what do you think a city should be? And one of those debates is probably the most divisive and important in modern architecture. What, generally speaking, should buildings look like? Because a big part of what gives brownstones their character is the fact that they were built with 19th century technology and a 19th century aesthetic. And that means even if they were built more quickly and cheaply than some of the other buildings of the period, they are still almost entirely handmade, and they're still, by our standards, remarkably ornamented. Brownstones almost always have some carved cornices, capstones, wrought iron gatework, flourishes of bas-relief, sometimes even touches of stained glass. The kind of decorative details that the Bauhaus and brutalism threw away completely a hundred years later, leaving us with the modern cityscape of clean lines and empty walls. I think, you know, if these buildings didn't have their ornamentation, um, 
we wouldn't think too much of them. But, you know, my mind keeps going back to this period in the late 60s, early 70s, when a lot of these buildings were being demolished. And you see these photograph books. A lot of them were printed by Dover uh, House, which I, my favorite, one of my favorite publishing companies. And they're these urban archaeologists, you could say. It's sort of similar to the ruin porn that you get a lot today, people going to Detroit. But back then, you know, people would be going through these old structures as they're being demolished, and they would rescue a cornice here, a little gargoyle there. And you can actually see in the Brooklyn Museum, they've sort of collected this material and preserved it a little bit. So it was this, I love that period of the early 70s when there's this sort of slow appreciation. You know, Jane Jacobs was doing this earlier, but this growing appreciation for this fragile, um, this, this fragile inheritance, you know. And in some ways, it's sort of a nice analogy to think about how so much of the beauty of New York is only is only skin deep but for that reason has to be valued the sandstone is just a facade it can it's going to grind away it's going to blow away but it's still something that can be preserved and yet again you know that this is where the debates come in because how much of it is how much of this is real just superficial right there's that famous essay uh from the late early 20th century ornamentation is crime uh and I can appreciate modern architecture, um, but I mean, just standing here, I'm in this, you know, we were just at the Met recently, and I feel like I'm, I'm still at a museum in some ways. I love it. I love yeah. gargoyles and little yeah. gigaws, and I just think it gives, gives something a, a spirit, and, you know, and well, a personality. Well, I mean, what it, it, it relates in some ways, and this is connecting it to Central Park, um, actually, because... Um, you know, in the, in the 19th century was the first era of real mass production in housing materials. And even then, there were some commentators who were afraid that buildings were losing their spirit of place, that the work of the artisan and the craftsman was being lost. And so you have this, this was articulated by this guy, John Ruskin, who had this theory of architecture that basically the craftsman's hand should be very evident and visible in all of the work. Things should be imperfect. You know, there should be little traces of the artist. And in Central Park, one of the architects, Calvervo, was inspired by this. And you see it in a lot of the bridges and infrastructure there, like Bethesda Terrace. And you also see it here. I mean, you know, these... You, you think about it, like... In the 19th century, there were immigrants and artisans who were chipping away at these buildings, and their handiwork is still evident to us. Can you really say the same thing about buildings today? Can you see in their facade the labor of the workers who are building them? I mean, at the most, a worker can point to one of these skyscrapers and say, I built that. But imagine being the craftsman and saying, you know, I chiseled away at that. Maybe it's not much of a difference, but it's, it's something, you know? Thanks for listening to London's New York. The star of the show is Daniel London. My name is David Hoffman, and I produced this episode with the assistance of Austin Cologne. We'd love to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have ideas for future shows, you can reach us via our social media pages. We're on Facebook and Twitter, at LNY Podcast. Please remember that today's London's New York was brought to you by Audible, where you can get the free audiobook of your choice by signing up for a no-obligation 30-day trial 
at audibletrial.com slash LNY. London's New York is a production of Race Car Radio, www.racecarradio.com.